Two turkeys from opposite sides of the tracks must put aside their differences and team up to travel back in time to change the course of history and get turkeys off the Thanksgiving menu for good. And that's the plot of Free Birds, starring Owen Wilson and Woody Harrelson. Hmm. I think this would make a great selection for the next four commentary tracks we do. I agree. I just think it's interesting because it's like there's no Thanksgiving movies. And this is like the one. Like, are there any other Thanksgiving movies? Plane yeah, train planes, trains. Yeah. We did that last. Even year. that's not like. Oh yeah, I mean that's like kind of Thanksgiving themed, but it's it's more like a character piece. This is like explicitly about Thanksgiving. Free birds. Well, that's the thing you see in a lot of movies is they don't explicitly feature the holiday. I mean, a movie like Halloween could really take place any night of the year. It doesn't necessarily need to be Halloween. So Halloween like incorporates the holiday because it's like a scary movie. It's a scary thing happening on a scary holiday. Perhaps. It's it's subtextually in there. Um, but not free you don't birds. Get, you don't get a lot of Thanksgiving themed movies like that. I mean, when I think Thanksgiving, I think free birds, and I think honestly, the original Spider Man. Very good. By the way, we just passed Dean Cundey's name. The director of Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves. Yep. Uh, classic. This is the first direct-to-video uh, Disney film, I believe. Mm-hmm. Like, live-action one, at least. Yeah, Dean Cundey is, I think, a pretty overlooked cinematographer. He's probably DP'd at least one of your favorite movies. Um, but his work is pretty excellent all around. He's a frequent collaborator, collaborator with John Carpenter. I see Tommy Wallace was an editor on this too, and if I'm not mistaken, Tommy Wallace directed the uh, It 1990s miniseries. Oh, he did. Yeah, let me double check. Okay, that. but yeah, that was uh, that was Tommy Wallace. Okay, well, he he directed Halloween three. There you go. Oh, interesting. Speaking of which, which uh, yeah, we're doing 1978's Halloween. I guess this is a free birds. <laughs> That'll be next. That'll be the next four ones that we do. So yeah, uh, the original Halloween. Um, this is often talked about opening scene, of course. Um, it's very unique with how um, it's shot, obviously shot to be looking like at least all one take. You know, you really don't know if who this is. Obviously, we now know this is um, Michael Myers' age. Um, but as a child, I guess you could have certain hints of it being a kid because of the height of the camera off the ground. But um, it's, I think, a really well seen. It's very tense. Um, there was the shot where they weren't yet sure what the mask was going to be for the adult Michael. So he had the Don Post clown um, mask, which he does wear in this scene. Um, I love the fact that they were like, eh, is it going to be this creepy, cliche clown mask or fucking William Shatner's face? And I think they made the right choice. Before, uh, before we dive in, let's just take a minute to explain each of our individual relationships with this film. All right. Um, I've seen this one and uh, many a times, and then parts four and five a lot on AMC back in the day, and then the 2018 one, and then that's it. So how big of a fan would you consider yourself? Eh, medium range. I've seen more than probably most people have seen of your average American, but less than like a diehard fan. As for me, I'm this. This is probably my favorite horror movie. I've, 
I've seen this movie many, many times. It's probably one of my first R-rated movies. Uh, and I've seen every single one of the following movies except the second Rob Zombie film. So I'm I'm a big I'm a big fan of the franchise all around. Most primarily this one. This is the one that I love the most. But I'm, I think I'm more fascinated by the other sequels. Um, and I do love them to varying degrees. Like a couple of them anyway, or at least bits and pieces of it. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of where I am. So you would say you're a pretty big fan then? Yeah, yeah, all around, yeah. Then I guess that comes to me, where I have seen this movie twice. And the only other one I've seen is the new 2018 Halloween um, by David Gordon Green with Jamie Lee Curtis. So I am not a big fan of this series. That's not to say I don't like this movie. I do like it, but I'm approaching it from much more of an outsider perspective. So you have... A medium fan, you have a big fan, and you have the guy who spent the beginning of this commentary talking about Freebirds. Um, so hopefully this will give you uh, a few different perspectives on the film we're about to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so again, going back to what I was saying, this was supposed to be his mask throughout the whole movie, I guess. And I think they made the right choice going with the Shatner. What do you two think? Well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> well, this movie was made for, what, $300,000 yeah. at the time? So they pretty much had no money. And I think even uh, the, the wardrobe to this movie, to, like the teenage girls, I think they, had, they they wore their own clothes for this movie. And I think Jamie Lee Curtis spent like $100 at JCPenney or something just to buy her own clothes for it. And I yeah, think... Right. Mo- oh. oh. Oh, sorry, but but I think I think it got bumped up to three hundred twenty-five thousand because they had to pay uh, Donald Pleasance twenty-five thousand. Just he was on set for five days. Yeah, well, that's the the majority of the budget went to I read yeah Donald Pleasance, and then half the budget went for the camera. <laughs> yeah, yes, Donald Pleasance was uh, the big name in this movie because yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis obviously was not she's as famous as she ended up becoming. Um, what? I'm trying to think. Some other Donald Pleasance movies. Anyone here ever see THX 1138? No, I haven't yet. Donald Pleasance to me is the standout performance in that movie. He's great in The Great Escape. Yes, mm-hmm. I forgot he was in that mm-hmm. great movie. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's a class act. He's, he's always pretty loyal to this franchise, for better mm-hmm. or for worse. He was always, even like when in the sequels when they got worse, he was always the standout in them. Just one of those actors who's just so naturally gifted. He doesn't have to try that hard. He, he just sounds, he just sounds talented. Would and because we've talked about this, and like I said, I'm, you know, I haven't seen the other sequels, but would you say he always gave it his all, and took it seriously, regardless of how schlocky the material might have gotten? Yes. Yeah. I, I think that showed up for the paycheck. I mean, not just that. I, I'm sure he did too, but he did. He did try. Uh, <laughs> he's not. He's not half-assing, and if he did, he does a very good job of pretending that he doesn't. Yeah. Well, I uh, always think to um, part four, I believe, and Jake, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's um, part four where he's dragging the screaming girl through the school, yelling, "Michael, little girl!" And it's like it's like he's got to be like sixty something, carrying this little girl around a thing, like really giving out. He's not like you know. Um, phoning it in at all like it's a you know it's a little over the top but i always think like oh this is the 
deranged psychiatrist, and that's what we see in these movies as we go on, that Loomis is becoming more and more unhitched every few years when Michael Myers returns, and he's like, who's that um, Greek goddess is the one who, um, like, you know, a Cassandra who, like, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but no one fucking believes. So it's like, five sheriffs later, it's like, listen, I know every previous Halloween, my entire police force and half the town's been murdered, but I don't think I'm going to believe you this year. It's like, you can see He's going insane, and he's doing a great job playing it. You know, when you get to the last one he's in, who's a better actor, him or Paul Rudd? Or Rudd? You know, it's clearly him. Yeah, well, it's actually the fifth movie that that he does what you're what you're describing, and he, there he's just taking the direct the direction of the director, and that's that movie is kind of baffling, um, yeah, to a point of almost one. fascinating. Yeah, I mean, one, it's it's fine. Is that the one that was that his last one? No, that was the sixth one. Oh, okay. That was the Weinstein yeah. one. So, See, I'm yes. trying to I'm trying to approach this from an outsider perspective to the franchise, not the guy who doesn't know what happens in the series. So I'll, <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> I, I, I actually have a larger... I'm sure we'll get into it later, but I have a larger thing about the pieties that form around this particular franchise, but also just like low-budget slasher franchises in general, like Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. Um, hopefully that'll be the insight I provide and not just, oh, I didn't know it was in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's an appreciative perspective because I think that's something worth, worth exploring actually, because it's a little difficult for me to, to be as objective because I'm, I'm a big fan of slasher movies for better or for worse. I just think they're fun. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing that perspective, but this, this movie in a, in a nutshell, you know, we, you, you look at slasher films historically, but this this isn't really a slasher movie i i don't think it's 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 certainly a horror film but I, to me it's almost like a thriller too and everything like that I, I think there's there's more interesting things going beneath the surface so this is very much a john carpenter film we tend to take the film for granted and everything but if you kind of look at it for what it is it's it's really just doing it its own its own thing it really it yeah pretty much that you know what always stuck out to me about it, um, both times I've watched it, is how raw the movie is. Yeah. And not raw, like, gory and, like, violent, but just, like, how straightforward, simple the whole thing is. And yeah. there's a real simplicity to the film that kind of makes it scarier, just how straightforward the whole thing is. That's, that's sort of the magic of it. Yeah, it's very stripped, and it's very much... I mean, that's very much John Carpenter's directing style, too. Um, you, you think of, like, I you know, just how, how simple, like, the concept is and the the kills are and the, the crimes that Michael Myers commits. I mean, the end of this movie is just, and we'll talk about it more when we get there, but it's just chasing her around in a house, Jamie Lee yeah. Curtis. It's very mm -hmm. simple. I actually, I like the 2018 Halloween, but if I had anything that stuck out to me as sort of uh, something I didn't care for as much in that film, it would be some of the more heightened elements that they added into it. I think it's like the opening of that movie where they're in the prison and all the prisoners are freaking out when they're trying to talk to Michael, like he's some satanic force. And like, yes, the point is that Michael Myers is pure evil, but it wasn't like this operatic thing though it was the simplicity of it was sort of what made it scary yeah 
Yeah. Well, and that's the... Um, I think that's the legacy of the series seeping into the narrative a little bit in that case. Well, well when you keep... And, and that's that becomes a fundamental problem of the sequels because I think you... The more you expand on Michael, the more you dilute him. He's he's more terrifying when he's scary. It's the simplicity of it that I think that's so scary about it. The idea is he's just he's just absolute evil and he's encased within just this this man, and he just stalks these babysitters and that's really it. You don't know why, he just does because he's evil and that's really it. It's almost Lovecraftian. It, it goes back to that simple horror that Carpenter I, that you see in his other movies too, like The Fog, The Thing. Um, what else? Too? I mean, oh, uh, the mouth of madness. He just he loves that really simple horror. And here, I I think he's he's using a lot of those ideas, and he's it's sort of encapsulated in this really low budget, simplistic story of this just this maniac. All this evil is just put in this man. I think that's part of what makes it so t so terrifying. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. It's um, when you really like you said, Jake. You know, you're the more you go into Michael, the more he's diluted. So okay, in part one. He's just some guy who randomly killed his sister, broke out, and then really the only reason why he's following Jamie Lee Curtis is in this scene right here where, you know, she goes up to the door and he's hiding. So it's just like a, you know, had she not stopped by to drop the keys off or she had already had to drop them off before he got there, none of this would have happened. He would have, you, you would have had a completely different movie of him going around killing other people. You know, he's a force of nature. You see that with the 2018 movie where... He's just killing people who he comes across, and really, it's only because the crazy doctor physically brings him to Jamie Lee Curtis that he goes on the killing rampage to get to her. You just feel it's he's a force of nature that just Jamie Lee Curtis is now in his way. Had she not been there again, it would yeah. have been. he would have continued killing you know other people around Haddonville that night. But then you get to the original part two. Okay, John Carpenter has to explain why she's there. Um, it's his sister. Okay, fine. He's trying to kill his sister. Cool. How yeah. do you know that? But whatever. Then that bleeds over into four and five and a little into six where he keeps trying to kill the family members off. And then, oh, now it's part of a cult where he's a tool and it's just weird and it's not nearly as scary. Right. The more you bring him back, the more you have to create an explanation as to why he's coming back. And it kind of leaves you no choice but to expand. But to expand is a contradiction of who Michael Myers fundamentally is. That's why it gets worse as it goes along, especially by the sixth one. Is but that why there's so many like pieties behind what a Halloween movie quote unquote should be? Probably. Uh, I think. Yeah. Because it's like you know what I noticed, and I noticed this with a lot of slasher franchises, but this is like the proverbial example. There's like a pattern to when these films come out. You, you get a new installment, and whether it's Halloween or anything else, and barring mm -hmm. a few exceptions that are received well. It comes out, it's kind of a cheap cash-in, mm -hmm. it's not well-received, but the fan base turns against it because it inherently contradicts what the fan base or what the audience sees as the thematic underpinning of the original films. And on one hand, I certainly understand that, but on the other hand, it's also very limiting creatively, where it's like, well... Does that mean if you have a more interesting idea or direction to go in with the franchise that contradicts what the previous film was about, can you not take it just because of the inherent piety that exists within this franchise? Now, I again, you... I, I haven't seen it, but what got me thinking about this was actually the uh, the Rob Zombie Halloween, which I mm -hmm. guess that's like gets into like Michael Myers' backstory, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Now, in theory, that based on what we said, that contradicts the idea of Michael Myers in this film. Mm hmm. Yeah, but well, that could that also to me and like I haven't seen the movie maybe the movie doesn't work on its own but to me I I don't have a problem with doing that in like a new version of Halloween a remake because it's doing its own thing it's not trying to be this movie again it's kind of trying to tell a new version of that story but I see a lot of people slam that film for inherently trying to give Michael Myers a backstory um, yeah, I think I don't that's think... okay if it's done well in its own right in like a vacuum it, it's not yeah that's not necessarily the problem it, the problem is the movie's just terrible it just I, I think i don't like rob zombie that much as a director i i get what he was trying to do but i think he just does it the wrong way it's just i mean if you know rob zombies his movies are pretty crass and very blatant and very uh, they're kind of dumb and that that's okay to a certain extent but i don't think it really it just doesn't gel well with halloween it just, it just it just doesn't it, doesn't work it's, on its own is what you're saying. No, yeah, it's badly executed. Cuz it's like I I, I I think you can do that. And I'm not I'm not a big Rob Zombie fan myself. And like I said, I haven't even seen it. The movie might not work on its own. It sounds like it doesn't. But no. I think conceptually what I see criticized most about that is be, that it takes such a different approach to Michael Myers. But mm -hmm. I mean, if you're doing a remake of Halloween, I almost think you should do that because Otherwise, you're just going to make a watered-down version of this film. Mm -hmm. Or, I guess, a, a really crass version if it's Rob Zombie. Try and, try and do something different. Um, and that's what I talk about when I say, like, the pieties of these franchises. Or of these franchises where it becomes sort of creatively stifling to even try and make another installment. Because you're so bogged down by what it's supposed to be versus what it can be. Yeah. Well, the other problem is just the sequels were just terribly just terribly executed with their ideas i mean it's just oh they were really even like halloween six which revolves around like a cult and michael's like the he's the center of this of this evil cult and there's like magic rocks and everything and it's just uh yeah that sounds like a a raw slasher film to me magical cults and stuff like that well, yeah because they Trying to have callbacks too, so like that Doctor Loomis was talking to at the very beginning, like they bring him back and he's the big bad guy, and it's like, yeah, remember him from thirty seconds in the first movie, and then like Tommy Doyle's brought back, played by like Paul Rudd, and it's like they're trying to have reverence for like the original one, but have zero idea like what to do with it, and you know, Jacob, your point of the piety of it you know people getting ticked off i think of you know i'm not a huge expert of the um, friday the 13th movies but the ones people point to negatively a lot are um I'm, i don't know the numbers off the top of my head but there's one of them where jason's not even there he's a copycat killer like it's just someone who also is wearing like a hockey mask people don't like that because it's not really jason and then um the final friday jason is you know, an entity, like a spirit that just was possessing his body. So, like, the FBI blows the shit out of Jason. And then, like, you know, he's a slug that goes from body to body. And it's just, like, a weird thing where it's, like, they were trying something new. It's, like, there's only so much you could do with these. The idea of a killer in a hockey mask or a killer in a Shatner mask. And they try and do something different. And, you know, that's, you know, the ultimate different plot they did was when they did Halloween 3, which had nothing to do with the first two movies and yeah fans you know 
ripped it to shreds. You know, as much as I'm okay with Halloween 4, I would have liked the idea of, like, John Carpenter and these talented filmmakers trying to do something different every year. Like, you know, that's like, okay, we had our first two movies with Michael Myers, and then, yeah, it didn't help that they fucking picked the weirdest fucking plot on the planet for Halloween 3 of, again, Magic Stones and um, I mean, Halloween yeah, six. turning kids into snake monsters and all that. That maybe they should have tried something a little bit more um, normal, but yeah, it's um, people get like really addicted to these franchises, and it's like you look at it, like you said, the body count on this isn't really great. It's you know not too bloody. Like those sequels, you know, are what people dislike about the franchises, but also what people identify the most with some of these franchises. It's like you know, especially the Friday the Thirteenth ones um, and Nightmare on Elm Street ones the true characters of Freddy and Jason don't really get formed until the sequels. It's like, you know, Freddy um, isn't nearly as much of a wisecracking asshole in the first one. Jason, you know, doesn't even appear in the first one, doesn't have his hockey mask till part three. So it's just like a weird thing where it's the piety for the originals, but the originals are the most different sometimes out of what the sequels are. Like, for as weird as the fucking sequels for Friday the 13th got, they were all in similar tits gore you know high body counts really gruesome kills same friday freddy same with um halloween and it's like it's very odd the reverence for the original but it's the most different from the remainder yeah. it's the you know green sticking out like the green thumb well yeah i mean all those stuff that, all that stuff you're talking about like going back to the friday the 13th and this and everything the problem with all those things that they were just executed terribly um i and i, I think that might be why fans hated it too but i think it also because you know i think a lot of times fans just don't like things that are different i think they are threatened by that um they like comfortable they like to the safe and comfortable if it deters too too far it makes them uncomfortable and they they lash out on it we've seen it happen many times even when it's done well well you know but, what it is i think a lot of like at the risk of sounding condescending to these fans i actually i don't mean it that way but a lot of them don't invest as deeply in yeah. sort of the craft of filmmaking as um, like film people do. And so they go and they see a film, like a, a bad Halloween sequel, and it doesn't work for a variety of reasons, but because they don't invest in it the same way that we do in, in the craft and the writing, then they kind of just look for those sort of tangible surface elements to blame it on. So if they mm -hmm. see something like Halloween 3, which I haven't seen, Although I think it sound that's the one that sounds interesting to me. It's, that's the it, different it, one. It's the best sequel. It, it's, they, it's it's not because it's necessarily different in a separate story, but because it's the most well executed of all the sequels, and it just happens to take a very different and interesting direction. Um, that's like that's like a great bonus. Yeah, and I, I think part of it, you know, I think part of it is just because you know they like the comfort of the familiar. But on the other hand, I, I think if the movie doesn't work you know, a general audience is more likely to point towards surface elements rather than deep dive into like writing issues or structural issues or something like that. And so they'll say, well, this one doesn't have Michael Myers. I don't like it as much. Or it felt too different, something yeah. sort of vague in general like that. And I, th I think that's why that, that can happen. I, I, I think so too. Yeah. Uh, now, actually talking about the making of Halloween itself, um, I love uh, upcoming here when they go around the hedge. 
if you pay attention, you, you can just see smoke billowing in from off camera because of John Carpenter was like chain smoking while directing. And oh, yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite movie facts ever. It's like right here, isn't it? Yeah, it's I think when Jimmy Lee Curtis is, comes and they're talking. Um, but yeah, th- no, this is like just like a very well executed. Scene. There you go, you saw it go across. <laughs> I, I've heard of that, yeah. But it's like, you know, this is all very well executed. It shows, you know, it's unfortunate with like the other sequels. It's like, this is such a simple, you know, it's, you know, going back to um, what I was like saying when we were interviewing Eduardo Sanchez for like the Blair Witch Project was, you know, there's not a lot of overt scares in this. It just is a very unsettling movie. And, you know, Carpenter and all of them did a great job at having, like, Michael Myers, like, looming on the edge of the, like, screen a lot on the edge of the frame. So it's like, okay, yeah, that's overt. You know, you physically see him. But, like, there are scenes, like, upcoming when they're um, driving past the harbor. So if you pay attention, like, in the upper corner, you can see, like, his car driving by. Like, he's still stalking them. It's just a very well done thing where it's like if you're not really paying attention you're not going to notice it but it's like just very well done in making you always feel like you need to be looking for him constantly what well, well, I, again well, like that last scene we just saw i that's what i mean when it's like it's very raw it's just up open daylight people walking down the street just a shot of like michael myers there by the bush it's very straightforward um very simple but that's that's what makes it so engaging well, in an interview, John Carpenter talked about it. he just got the style, this very restrained style from just movies that he watched growing up. And he's, he's, he talked about one movie he watched in college, I think called Innocence. And he described the, this, this this wide shot of like a ghost on like a lake just way far in the distance. And he said just the fact that it was, it was so far back and you couldn't really see much of its features is what made it so eerie. So that was something he remembered. It's like a surreal element to it. Yeah. You, you know, you're conditioned to think of these slasher villains as constantly being hidden in shadow and creepy lighting and obscure, weird camera angles. But here it's just very straightforward. And that kind of almost makes it more eerie. Yes. Again, it, it almost a lot of this stuff is almost incidental to the kind of, well, maybe I shouldn't say incidental, but just of the reaction afterwards. I mean, this is all they're doing is just executing a story to the best of their ability. It's just John Carpenter making a film, and it just happens to become this huge thing. I think but just the kind fact of... that it became a huge thing is also part of the reason why we can analyze this film the way we are now and be like, oh, yes. it's so raw. Because in comparison to what it became, not just what this series became, but what the whole genre became, yes, it's very like straightforward and raw. Even like, this is like weird, but like most of this movie is taking place during like daytime now. At yeah. least up to this point. Yep. Yeah, the first, like, two-thirds of the movie is, yeah, right, daytime, with exception of flashbacks. Um, yeah, but, I mean, it's just, like, a very well-executed, and, like, you know, it's a testament to what they were able to do on, like, such a small budget that, you know, and, like, the originally... This wasn't even supposed to be centered around Halloween. It was supposed to be, like, multiple nights where, like, each night someone was being killed, like, one by one, and they realized... We can't afford to do that, do that many, like, you know, day, night, day, night, you know, multiple costume changes, multiple this, that, and the other thing. So, like, okay, let's change it to largely a day and a night. And then, like, okay, well, what night should we set on? Should it just be a random night? Uh, how about Halloween? And, you know, it, like, it's inc- it was incidental originally, but, I mean, it works perfectly. You know, that's, it. you know, it's perfect because it's, like, 
what's the one time of year if you see someone wearing a mask walking around town that you won't be immediately suspicious of them? I mean, besides now with the pandemic, we all have to wear masks. But um, generally before that, yeah, it was Halloween. So it's perfect that she's a little unnerved by this guy. But like she wouldn't, you know, you don't blame her for not calling the cops. It's just like, oh, it's just some asshole wearing a mask because it's Halloween. Like this is normal. You know, what's funny is the same thought process went into the making of the movie Freebirds, where they were making this film about turkeys traveling through time to stop turkeys from being eaten on Thanksgiving. And they were like, well, when do we set this film? And they went through all the holidays. Then they realized if they set it on Thanksgiving, that it fit perfectly with the theme of the film. Oh, my God. Stay tuned for our Freebirds commentaries, parts one through four, though. Mustafa Kad's a genius. Well, he, he was the, the producer of this movie. He did. He was the producer of all of them. Yeah, pretty it. much. He uh, all well, the birds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's the one who had the idea originally. This was not a John Carpenter original idea. Yeah. He, he just had the idea of a movie being about babysitters being stalked and killed, and that was and that was really it. And then he went to John Carpenter, and Carpenter just said he he'd do it because he didn't have a job at the time, but he wanted creative control. And uh, his name at the top of the title, and he agreed to all those things. That see, I've heard that thing about the like the babysitter killer idea. Yeah, I'd watch that movie if he just like made a straight up movie about like babysitters getting killed. I'd watch that yeah. if John Carpenter did it. Oh yeah, I'm sure it still would be good. Yeah, that makes like a the... great episode of the Babysitters Club. <laughs> <laughs> That's the finale. Yeah, this, this was just a period when Carpenter was just on fire. He was just making great movie after great movie. Because he like set before this... on fire with the cigarettes? Wait, did he? No, I'm joking. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I kind of believe that because he's a chain smoker. What, uh, see, he's like someone that'd be very interesting to like talk with. Um, isn't he... Who was it? Was it you, Jake, or Andrew that was telling me that he's a big fan of Sonic the Hedgehog? I, that could have been me. me. That's probably me. <laughs> was he the one? Because he gave some interview. He's like, "Oh yeah, I love Sonic. I even love the one where he turns into a werewolf." And I'm like, "That's like that's the obscure game to reference." Yeah, I, I I've heard too. He's a, he's a pretty nice guy to talk to and everything. Or just like interesting because he's like a you know, big genre, big genre, big swing sort of filmmaker. And you know, yeah. not all of his films have worked, but they're I feel they're at least interesting to talk about for the most part. Oh, absolutely. From from the, here, the late seventies till either the early nineties, late eighties, uh, he was just on fire. Now his primary job is to pick up the phone when filmmakers ask to remake his movies. Yeah, I, I really respect his his view on it. I just doing it for the money. I, I can respect that, honestly. I, I mean, that's the dream. Yeah. Let's well, not beat around the bush, fellas. We would totally do that if we were in the same position. Absolutely. Plus, these movies—I know they remade a lot of his movies in the in the two thousands, but those came and went. And these will always stick around, really. So, what's he got to lose except, you know, not getting a, a nice paycheck? And see, it makes those movies look even better because you know it's like, hey, he gets a shit ton of money for like, hey, you can keep remaking Halloween, go ahead. And then when those movies come out. It's like, wow, that movie really sucks. You know, it was a great movie the first Halloween he made. So he, it's a win-win for him. It makes him look like a better filmmaker, and he makes money for doing nothing. 
And he did the music for the the new one, right? Yeah. That yeah. Was his return to the franchise. Yeah, him and his son. Yeah, he, he, it's just great. He, he writes, he directs, and he can do the music too. And he's actually a, a very talented musician. He has like his own group group now. I think with his son or something. We'll he have still to puts see out them music. Perform once venues open up again in six years. <laughs> Yeah, well, she, uh, oh. oh, go ahead. Uh, well, the the actor there who plays Annie, she's like a recurring Carpenter character. She's in The Fog, and she's also uh, in Halloween 3. Oh, yeah. Uh, but this is the scene I was talking about. You'll see, like, Michael Myers' car pass by in the background in a minute. Oh, yeah. Was this one. You yeah. can't see it in the widescreen version. I mean, you, you can see it in the widescreen version, but not the full screen. Yeah, so watch the widescreen. Yeah, so also, here you go. Illo- this is uh, great. It looks like Illinois, right? Not Pasadena? Yeah. All those palm trees. Honestly, See, I, I never, like I said, I haven't no, watched yeah. this movie a bunch of times, so yeah. it always just looked like the Midwest to me. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, yeah, no, there he is over his shoulder. Um, no, it, joking aside, like, the, yeah, they did a good job. It's only now, after moving out to L.A., that I'm starting to notice, like, oh, those aren't... Your typical like midwest looking houses and i love like you know and it was a detail they didn't necessarily need to do but i love the fact that they had to go to a craft store buy a bunch of fake leaves or like i guess a, or a fake tree or whatever rip off the leaves and then paint them different fall colors and just keep scattering them around like on the streets and on lawns and like then as soon as he yelled cut okay shit guys we gotta go collect those don't let the wind blow them away and it's like it's a nice little touch um you know, yeah, you can occasionally see palm trees in the background, but, you know, it, it still works. It, you know, it, they make it feel Midwestern. I know the sequels, they actually did film um, some of them in the Midwest, but this works. Yeah. No, I, like, look, it's one of those details you, you only notice if you watch this movie a million times. I, I think yeah. they do a great job of concealing that. Yeah, you're, you're watching it, and you're just like, oh, they're going down the local Midwestern Sepulveda Boulevard. <laughs> Now, something I've noticed here that I'm not sure if it w- what it was, you can see there's a lot of smudges on the glass here of her Annie's car. And I was reading that this movie was shot out of order to the point that John Carpenter had to create a ferrometer or something like that to like tell J.B. Lee Curse, like, okay, where you're at. So I wonder if that shot was filmed after Annie's death scene because she's like hitting at the windshield. So I wonder if those smudges were from that take when they were doing that and they didn't bother to clean the glass off. So that's something I've just noticed. <laughs> they just didn't have so, time. Yeah, they didn't get the Windex out. <laughs> but yeah, we're 40 minutes in before we get to Halloween Eve. Yeah, at night. Well, actually speaking, going back to the cinematography, I read somewhere that Carpenter and Dean Cundy actually watched Chinatown as the inspiration for the cinematography. Huh. The real kind of blown out orange daytime colors with the, with the blues and... Uh, at night and everything, which I I can actually kind of see it. Yeah. Well, and my joking uh, with the it clearly being Pasadena, if you look carefully, I mean, this now really for the rest of the movie feels like you're in a small deserted Midwest like street, and it's great that you know like you have a little bit of trickling down that you see a bunch of kids on the street. Yeah, you're thinking this is probably like I don't know like if they say it, but like. This is like 7.30 on Halloween even as we go later and later through the movie. You start seeing less and less people and to the point that 
you don't even see the neighbor who she pounds on the door at the end like that asshole neighbor who hears her screaming for help and just shuts his light off like you at a certain point you just don't see anyone else except for the main characters and then Loomis and the sheriff and like it makes you feel so much more isolated even though presumably the vast majority of these houses have people on them that's just like hey it's now late people are inside Halloween's over for this small midwestern town does a good job at that sheriff yes I also love this house is now like a massage parlor in Pasadena I only know that because James Rolfe uh, the angry video game nerd did like a location um, like hunt when he came out to Hollywood for like to scout his own movie and he's like they actually moved this house that's not in the same location anymore and it's been turned into um, a massage parlor and it's like really nicely fixed up it's like bright lively colors are painted on it it's like you know little do you know this is a famous horror movie house <laughs> I'd say something like a hundred plus kind of, years old I think it's fun you know it, it's like uh, the, just the obscure locations that end up in these iconic movies I always think about uh What's that cafe in the original Spider-Man? Is it like the Moon Cafe? Yeah. I passed by that while I was like in uh, middle school driving through New York. And I remember it's just some local restaurant that just is on that street there. It's like, oh, it was in this huge movie. And it's just a local restaurant. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, when you live in a major city, you just start recognizing these locations. It's like, oh, it's just a local cafe. Like the... Um, down the street from where we live is like Corky's Diner Roll closed down last year but it's like I can't tell you how many movies I've now recognized that from like going there like three times I think my favorite I moved to LA and this movie series or film or whatever got messed up for me uh, example for me personally was Cloverfield because I followed the Cloverfield stuff back in the day like I was obsessed with the the viral marketing campaign for the original Cloverfield film or like oh what's the movie and like Cloverfield ended up being like the working title and then it was the real title and I was like what could it mean is it like a code name for something is that like the name of the monster and oh Cloverfield's just the name of the exit that they get off of to get the bad robot (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's in Santa Monica Um, I've never heard of that's great well well, my location that got ruined for me is um, Back to the Future 2 when they go through that tunnel at the end where uh, Biff and then like Marty gets saved and then Biff crashes in the manure truck because remember what he did that in the first one. Um, realizing that tunnel is a, only like a tenth of the length of like what they portrayed in the movie. And I guess re-watching that movie now that that tunnel's like five miles long, it seems like with the amount of time they spend in it with Biff driving 55 miles an hour, but... speaking of very long tunnels i'm getting totally sidetracked here what was the bridge from bad boys 2 (laughs) was that like was that supposed to be like the bridge to get to like the outer banks in south carolina or is that supposed to be like i because i was on a bridge um when i when i went to the outer banks there was like a bridge that was really long like that and i'm like oh so maybe bad boys 2 wasn't complete nonsense bridges like this can exist because i remember when we watched that i was like oh my god is this just like the world's longest bridge everybody's going like 100 miles an hour and this scene is like 20 minutes long they just never reached the end of that bridge during that car chase 
Hey, listen, if Hill Valley, California could have a 15-mile-long tunnel, you know, the Outer Banks could have that. Well, I assume, does Bad Boys take place in Miami? I feel like it does. The first one does. I, I don't, I forget about the second one. Because that bridge was longer than the city of Miami, but, you know. <laughs> Back to Halloween. Oh, yeah, Halloween. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the scene shows, like, uh, how nice Lori is. That she's like, you get, they do, like, a good repartee between her and this um, Tommy Doyle kid. Like, you get the real feeling that she's been babysitting him for a couple years now and that she does actually care for him. You know, with Annie, I don't know if it was a deliberate thing or not. I don't I get the thing that she likes Annie nearly as much as she tolerates it. Maybe it's just a job for Annie, but... I think it may speak volumes to Jamie Lee Curtis's acting and um, the characterization of Lori that you really feel like she's like the nicest person that has the worst fucking luck that will ever happen to her. And it's just then when you see the 2018 one, it's really a shame. Like you see like the PTSD and what this night will eventually have done to her. Well, this is actually, I want to talk about that, but before I do, this is sort of like where the final girl trope originated from, yeah. right? It was this film. And Carpenter and um, Deborah Hill have said they um, never intended to make the whole thing of virgins survive, don't have sex. Like, their thing was, well, I mean, yes, strictly speaking, she's the only one who's not with a boyfriend or thinking about sex or trying to be distracted by anything else. So she's the only one who's, like, alert enough to, like, notice weird shit versus the two people um, later on PJ Souls and Bob are like, you know, actively banging. She's getting ready to try and go on a date that it was completely inadvertent, but um, it did at least up that trope of. Well, yeah. Look, the reason they have, the reason they have sex before they, the reason they have sex before they die is they needed a reason for them to get them alone and, you know, unaware before Michael kills them. That's that's really it. It's not like part of some trope or anything. That just became a thing afterwards. The tears just, a means to an end it's very practical that's what's kind of interesting about it is that it became yeah. a trope but here's just sort of a practical storytelling element yeah yeah yep and that's how a lot of those things start it yep. just starts as someone emulating something until it goes from copy to just like a genre onto its own yeah it was it was i mean friday the 13th is just a blatant shameless ripoff of this movie yeah that's has where it kind of gets into that has anyone here seen sleepaway camp yeah, I have. I just watched it recently. That's, oh my god! What I just did you like think? just last week. I just watched it. <laughs> what did you think? It was great. I loved it. It was <laughs> ridiculous. So intentionally hilarious at times. Just the, the the extras. Some of them were like forty, and others were like fifteen <laughs> as the camp counselors. It, it was hilarious. Just uh, you know what's funniest to me is that like the acting was all over the map. Not in terms of yeah. just like how good the actors were, but like what kind of performances they were giving. Like yeah. some yep. of them were playing just like very naturalistic sort. Had very naturalistic acting. Others were just like completely over the top cartoon characters. Um, yes. There's yes. like no one was reining them in, and so some people were just totally cartoonish. Some people were acting naturalistic, and it's a very funny juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. But yeah, back to Halloween. No, um, but you know, you're right though with um, how like the trope gets stolen and like it keeps getting spun. To, like it, you know, in this one, it had a very practical purpose of yeah, we need the teens isolated, we need them distracted, so okay what do teens do okay they have sex there you go yeah or they're wanting to go on a date they're thinking about their boyfriend 
and all that. And you look at it, I mean, there is nudity in this movie, obviously, with Michael's sister at the beginning, which is a little obscure because it's dark in the room and the whole, like, gimmick of you're seeing through the mask. And then, obviously, PJ Souls, but it's like, it, yeah, it doesn't feel nearly as gratuitous as you see with these later Friday the 13th movies where they're just like, yeah, we just got to put nudity in there. Might as well have the characters having sex in, like, every single scene. Well, Carpenter always talks about the power of su- suggestion. And I think that that really started in, in this movie. Because in Assault on Precinct 13, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's it's a lot actually more violent than his later movies, I would say. It's it's less suggestive and more blatant to the point where you actually see like a little girl get killed on camera. It's pretty surprising, at least for a, for a John Carpenter film, if, if you've seen his other movies. So with, so after, after that, that even... Too. Yeah. So even after that, he, he said he... He, he thought of it, that was a little too too rough. So I think with this, he, he hit his stride in terms of his, his more restrained, simplistic directing, where I... This is random. Has anyone here actually seen the original but thing from another world? I have not. Come up on the TV. No. I'd like to. I would, too. I, I, I'm trying to remember. Maybe it was Sci-Fi Boys. Maybe that was the name of the documentary. But I saw a documentary where Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and some other filmmakers were talking about... A, bunch of those old 50s sci-fi movies and that was one of them they were breaking down some of the scenes and it was pretty cool yeah well that was that's a howard hawks movie too and i think that was when his career was kind of on the downslope which is ironic too because i I know carpenter's a howard hawks fan assault on precinct 13 is pretty much like rio Rio bravo it's it's essentially a western oh interesting yeah Yeah. Um, it's it's a it's a last stand like face-off sort of thing El Dorado, too. Same movie. Howard Hawks remade the same movie, like, twice. <laughs> it's, but he... So it's pretty say, interesting. I think El Dorado I saw. I don't know if I saw Real Bravo. Yeah, it, it's like the same movie, and they're both great, but, the, I mean, it's... it's like, But it, uh, it's, it's kind of fascinating. It's kind of like how Woody Allen remade Crimes and Misdemeanors as, um... Oh, what was it called? The one with... Matchpoint? Matchpoint, yeah. Which is yeah. Loose, a loose remake of Crimes and Misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing. It's interesting to see filmmakers kind of going back and seeing, like, okay, what can I do to improve this? And I was watching this thing because it being Halloween, I've been watching a lot of the classic Universal monster movies. And, you know, James Whale did um, Invisible Man, Frankenstein, and The Mummy. And, like, all three of those movies are pretty similar in plot of when you look at it. I mean, half the cast are, like, the same across them, but, like, you see, like, the idea of, like, okay, mad scientist. You have the girlfriend of the scientist trying to talk him down. Like, you see how, like, the movies kind of, like, evolve. And, like, okay, you know, he's a little too dicky in this one. Let me try and make him more sympathetic. Okay, no, let me back that off. And it's interesting that the idea for filmmakers would be, like, not, like, pull Lucas and go back and re-edit their movies. But, like, l- let me loosely remake this again. That was just a side note. I yeah, no, I, I think it's a, a uh, an interesting point, and I actually would say I think part of it is just a lot of these filmmakers have certain ideas and themes that they're they're interested in, and obsess over a little bit, and it comes up a lot in their films. Yeah. So when you see something like a crimes and misdemeanors match point sort of thing, or like we were talking about uh, with Howard Hawks, um, it's just the stuff that interests these filmmakers, and they make more than one film about it well yeah it's that, that's just part of the the fingerprint of of the director 
going back to the carpenter, there is, there's like a common theme and a lot of, I think from, from this point to starting from Assault on Precinct 13 to maybe The Thing and, and, and some of his other movies too, actually, I would say, where it's like this unstoppable force, this unrelentless force that's just unkillable, that is just coming for you no matter what, and you really can't do anything about it. It's in Assault on Precinct 13. It's in this movie with Michael Myers. That's in The Thing. The Fog, where, you know, it's these ghosts in the fog coming for you. Even in the mouth of Manus at a, at a certain point. It's, it's again, it, I said it before, but it's almost Lovecraftian. This just this absolute evil that's after you. In uh, the mouth of Madness, I would say that it's very directly Lovecraftian. Yes, absolutely. Here it's a little more uh, implicit, but I, I would say Michael Myers is almost like a Lovecraftian character, or at yeah. least in the idea behind him is... It's like a very stripped down sort of Lovecraftian character and that he's yes. just a guy, but he's yeah. got that pure evil in him and that's all there is to him. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. the thing. It's, you know, very interesting because um, it goes again to Donald Pleasant's acting when he gives that speech of like, you know, I tried to reach him for X years and then I spent the next X years trying to keep him locked up forever. And like, it is very like, you know, he's almost describing like a supernatural creature. And I mean, when we get to the sequels, of these movies with the literal magic um and part six but even like when you see like the punishment he survives where it's like okay there's no way he could be a guy but it's like he's describing almost like him as a supernatural being where it's like and it's a very interesting touch here any injury you see him get in the movie in the climax between the neat the needle in the neck and the hanger like to the eye like these are all like and then, like even when she stabs him like and the stomach orbits like these are all technically survivable injuries that like it doesn't he doesn't necessarily he's just an evil man like there's not a supernatural element so like it works in two different levels of you can imagine is he supernatural yet or is he just like pure evil and that's what he means it's so weird yeah. to me that like the sequels go into magic because i can't even imagine like michael myers as a character from like the two films i've seen i can't even see him like getting involved in magic stuff because i feel like he would like not care or understand any of it he's um, like a pawn to be like if you try yeah. doing some like magic ritual involving magic stones or something around michael myers he would get bored and then just go and try and kill someone it's kind of like giving tom bombadil the one ring and he would just drop it in the forest that's just <laughs> what i think of when i hear like these complicated plot mechanics with you know with michael myers but then again it's like you know you also what, what else are you going to do with these movies and you don't want to stifle the creativity and just get lost in the inherent quote unquote rules of these films and you know i don't know it's kind of, it's it's a problem because the other problem is that they just slap these together the yeah, later sequels and everything I, people just didn't care as much i mean sometimes you got the sense that you had like a young like i, I was reading up in some of the behind the scenes of like the latter sequels for for halloween it sounded like you had like a young writer a young director who actually kind of wanted to say something about it um, so I, th I think it's there's always like a good intention behind it. It's just, I don't know. Well, a lot of it was studio interference was screwed. Because so part four, which I think is just a good sequel. I mean, forget the whole fact that you know they shot out his eyes and he was incinerated. So it was Donald Pleasant's okay. The fire was put out. Whatever, I'll buy that. But you know, it ends with him seemingly killed again, and then you know Jamie, you know um, Jamie Lee curses Laurie's daughter. Um, supposedly has inherited the killer gene and you're led to believe she murdered her stepmother, um, adoptive mother 
and you know, like, that was where they were going to be going on. Like they intentionally yeah. like, will make her as the killer, and then the studio's like, no, 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 you got to bring Michael Myers back. So part five, like okay, he's back. He floated down river, and there's like a man in black and like a thorn um, symbol that that like plays into part six that they were like. Just like you gotta put something up, put a mystery element in it. Like the writer of that didn't know what either the thorn symbol that was tattooed on Michael's wrist or and then showed up throughout the movie or the man in black was. It was just one of those things where it's like, all right, well that'll be explained in the next one, I guess. And that gets to part six and sounds like gotta explain like, okay, this guy who because it's like when you watch part five, it's almost like magic is being used to like break him out of jail. Like, the only, like, real-world thing, like, watching that scene where he's, like, broken out of jail and you see the aftermath is, like, if they use fucking thermite or something uh, to blow open the jail door. And it's, like, just now part six, like, okay, you know, we got to explain this now. And then, I mean, part six, that would be an interesting commentary to do. Maybe we'll do that sometime. It's the the worst one. Yeah. It's the worst one. It's got the most fascinating history. That one can wait. Yeah, I, I don't blame that. That's when I, I, I'm not really, I'm not in a rush to watch again. It's just kind of like a, even like with five, I think it's just terrible. It's the second worst one. But with that one, at least it's kind of fascinating because you're just, some of the directorial choices, you're like, what the fuck was the director thinking to the point where it's fascinating? But with the sixth one, it's so like joyless and just wrongheaded in every way. It just, it's just awful. I just, there's no joy. Like even a Halloween resurrection, I enjoy Halloween. It's, it's terrible, but. It's like one of those so bad it's good movies, and um, Buster Rhymes I think gives a pretty good performance. I think he's actually taking it very seriously, and he—I he, genuinely believe him in that situation. Is trying to become a fan of like the Halloween series or like any slasher series like this, like joining a group of drama-filled friends, where you try and become a fan of it, but then there's like all these different like rules and all this gossip with all the different installments, and you kind of don't like a bunch of them, and it's like. You like them, but you don't like them. It's it's like a it's like a drama filled click is what it feels like these franchises. <laughs> yeah, I I, I agree with. It. Um, but yeah, this is why I was referring again. You see her like, kicking shit and all that, so I wonder if those were the streaks were coming from. <laughs> Just didn't clean it up. Well, actually, that, we should mention cool. we should mention who's playing Michael Myers. It's Nick Castle. It's a uh, a, a school friend of John Carpenter's. I think Nick Castle said he, he wanted to get in directing and see firsthand what it was about. And John Carpenter just said, well, uh, why don't you just play the guy in the mask so you can be there every day on set to see what we do? And that was kind of the solution. Plus, <laughs> I, get, I, get, I guess he had like a, a unique walk and he was tall enough where he had enough of a presence for it. But he went on to, uh, be, to direct himself. He directed The Last Starfighter. He co-wrote Escape from New York with John Carpenter. I'm actually looking him up right now because he yeah. he directed a few things, didn't he? Yeah. He did. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see. He also did the original treatment for Hook. He did. Oh yeah, I just I just scroll past that. Yeah. Hook. Yeah, he's still like listed as the writer, but I read uh, they were like his script was pretty much thrown out. Like all they kept was the concept of adult Peter Pan has to rescue his children, but it was um, a contractual thing where they left him on as like a writer, like to. Fill that, fill that out with him. Oh, that's right. He did Dennis the Menace. Oh, jeez, yeah. With Walter Matthau. I saw that several times. Michael Myers murder. He directed Dennis the Menace. Oh, my God. That's so weird. Um, well, it's weird because it's like, you know, even though this is really the only acting thing he's ever done, it's like he does a good job, like, as Michael Myers. And it's like, we'll get to it in a few minutes when he um, 
the infamous kill, killing Bob and, you know, like, knife to the, like, you know, pinning him to the wall. And he does, like, that head tilt, like, John Carpenter's, like, that was all Nick Castle. It's, like, that's a, you know, like, a very, like, well-acted performance from some guy who's, like, yeah, like you said, he just wanted to be on set to see how directing worked. And, you know, he could have just been uh, straightforward, like, okay, I'm walking around, I'm killing the girl and all that. But he, he does a very nice performance on it. Well, Which, yeah, and that... Oh, sorry, just real quick. Was he oh, sure. Michael Myers in the new one? One yes. brief scene. I think Sometimes, scene. yeah. Yeah, he. I think it's, um, from what I understand, the only scene he plays Michael Myers is um, the scene when um, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis like, looks in the window and shoots at him, and it's revealed that it was his reflection, so she missed a shot. I think it was just that one. Is it kind of like in The Force Awakens when... Peter Mayhew would play Chewbacca whenever he was sitting down, and then they would have the new guy come in for the action. Pretty much. Okay. Well, that that's I I will give the the new one credit for actually getting the the characteristic of Michael down with his, how he moves and breathes and everything. I think that's really important that the other sequels missed out on, except maybe the second one. But after that, it was just like obviously it was always a stunt guy in a suit, but they I don't think they really. It just never quite worked as well. I, I don't think because they really understood it as much of well, what it meant. The thing where it's, there's not the consistency with actors as well, like, you know, like with Kane Hodder as Jason. Like he's Jason for like like five of them. Um, he came four. Like four. Um, yeah. Yeah, where it's like you know he knew how to play Jason. It's like yeah, I could very easily have just been like okay, let's get a different stunt guy. And I think the big problem is one like the masks like they could never get the masks to look right again after no. this like so it's like you look the masks always look different and two like they're not paying attention to the type of guy they're getting to be in this costume so it's like part four he looks like a fucking football player it's like you know where it's like here you know he's like very tall but like you know you can tell he's like a little muscular but like he's like you know pretty skinny guy and it's like i i don't know like to me it's like seeing the big football player michael with the tight mask looks ridiculous versus he's wearing loose fitting clothes because he just stole them and like you know he seems a little unassuming like yeah yeah he could definitely kick my ass and i'm sure nick castle at age 70 probably could still kick my ass but um you know that's what's i more frightening is like you don't know like you kind of see it's like i could probably take that guy as he then beats the ever-loving shit out of you and stabs you to death and all of this is funny because Whoever played Michael was just the stuntman they probably had that day who was available, who got the gig. They're like, okay, this is Michael. You so got the job. About, it's they, <laughs> this stuff was planned like no, bit no. by bit. It's just us. Uh, my friend's playing Michael Myers. Yeah, and, I, um, I, it was pr- it was pretty much that until I think the this new movie here. That's what. That's what. Again, I talk about like the pieties that form behind these franchises, where it's like this movie. They're making this movie, and it's just. John Carpenter's friend Nick Castle playing the killer wearing like a William Shatner mask that they bought for two cents from like the local dollar store mm-hmm. and now it's this grand mythology where it's like Michael Myers you know the real Michael Myers must move this way and breathe this way and it's just like none of this was intentional it's just kind of what people got attached to yeah well I actually oh no it's it's yeah well I I agree with that. You can cut that out, Was. I was just stumbling there. Okay. Uh, but no, what I was going to say... Should is... add in, like, like heart attack sounds there. <laughs> um, no, but... And then just have, like, the sound of a body hitting the ground and then cut so... out Jake's, like, audio for the rest of the, uh, the track. 
Uh-huh. We'll do it like the they did with the Blair Witch, where they listed the actors as missing or dead on IMDb. We're gonna do that, but just say Jake had a stroke. <laughs> R.I.P. We'll start a GoFundMe. Uh, no, what I was trying to say is like you said, yeah, like all this was kind of like just planned out, like as they were going along. Like, okay, let's pick up a mask, and like I said at the beginning, I was like, it was between the mask we see of the Shatner mask and the Don Pokes clown mask, which I think you know what makes this so creepy is it's just blank and like. All that, and, you know, I saw for the 2018 movie, they um, got the original prop master back, and, like, they, or, I don't know if they got him back for the movie, but, like, they, someone was interviewing him, and they bought a vintage Shatner mask, and, like, show us what you had to do to make this, and, like, you see, he's like, okay, I'm just roughly cutting the eye holes out, like, he's barely paying attention as he's doing it, as he's talking to them, and he's like, okay, then we had to spray paint the hair, because it was a lighter color, he's like, okay, we got to spray paint it dark, so he's just, like, getting like, a piece of cardboard holding it over, like, the mask to make sure he's not getting out of the face, you know, and doing it. He's like, oh, then we rip the sideburns off, and then we, yeah, we kind of paint it white, try to make sure it's even. It's like, you see he's doing this over the course of five minutes, and it's like, this looks better than any manufactured Shatner mask that you can buy at, like, Spirit Halloween now. And it's just, like, amazing. It's just, like, this just, like, slapdash, like, let's do this, you know, maybe he took a little bit more time in the original, but, like, it's still, like, a... We're taking a mask, just cutting the eye holes, make them a little bit bigger, and spray painting it white. There you go. And now we have an icon of horror, like a mask they bought for like a buck or something like that is now one of the most iconic, you know, mo- movie villains, monsters, whatever you want to call them, of all time. And, and what I get from that, you know, is humor because we tend to mythify the most simplistic things. You know, this guy, he was probably this underpaid employee, you know, he had no money. He just did this thing because he had to do it. And he did it well. But it, it wasn't this huge ceremonious thing. He just did what he had to do, and it happened yeah. to just create this very iconic thing. Maybe magic rock rituals with cults are actually a fitting metaphor for the Halloween, like the fans of these sort of movies and stuff like that. Deifying the simple thing that doesn't really care about you that much. Yes. It's just, where did you come up with the idea of the iconic Michael Myers mask? I we had to be wrapped up before dusk. Got it done yep. really fast. Pretty much. I don't know. I, I... Well, that's like, I, I always think, like, as we're doing, like, these commentaries, one day will this be a multi-billion dollar franchise, so coming up with a stupid name in five minutes, you know, it's like, that's the equivalent of it. We won't, again, to our 25 subscribers, we really appreciate you. But, yeah, it's, it is just like, you know, the simplicity of it is great because it's like, yeah, it just feels natural. That's like, yeah, Michael Myers just happened to grab whatever mask was available to him at the time to, like, hide who he was, you know. So in the 60s, it was a clown mask. In the 70s, it was the one, you know, potentially the one mask that they had at the um, at the you know, uh, hardware store that he broke into um, earlier in the movie. That's just, like, it's this simple thing that you don't need to assign too much logic to. And you're right, it's been deified of, like, okay, you know, and it's, like, a weird thing, like, in, I think it's in part four, where it shows him, like, breaking into another store, and you see, like, just a row of Michael Myers masks, and, like, he just, like, gotta get that, you know, it's, like, it's, you know, commodity now, and it's, like, it just feels weird, and it's, again, it's what goes into the original version of this, where it's just, he sees, um, Lori and then falls her that's like had it been any other mask it would have been a different thing or had there not been a mask there maybe he wouldn't have done it maybe he feels he needs the mask so if 
you know, he'd done this and had broken out in January, maybe he wouldn't have been able to kill people because there would have been no mask. It's just a, he's a force of nature and just like any one of these variables creates a different movie or no movie at all. I was rambling there. I think I had a stroke. So I'm going to be the last one left talking on this thing. I also love how PJ Souls had a cameo in the 2018 one. She's the teacher. I don't think she's on screen, but she's um, giving the like lecture that mirrors Lori's in the beginning of this. So I like to think that she actually somehow survived, and they just don't bring too much attention to it. I didn't know John Lennon was in this movie. Well, I guess I heard Dennis Quaid was originally supposed to play uh, the boyfriend PJ there. Souls? Yes, PJ Souls. <laughs> I actually could see a young Dennis Quaid doing that role. I, I saw Enemy Mine recently, and I was like, oh, he's really good and young and energetic in this movie. Well, we always know the horror movie he should always be associated with is Jaws 3. <laughs> oh, yeah. That and Leah Thompson. That and, what was it? Was Legion the one where oh, with, uh, yeah. with Paul Bettany? Yeah, with the diner with the demons and angels. I watch that movie once a week. <coughs> anyway, the boy, the cinematography is really great. Yeah, no, I mean this is really well shot. Yeah, you can do a lot with little here, but um, but it, going back, I kind of want to talk about like the sequels and everything. But uh, it's just it's just kind of funny how that started too with like. Because now we deify the whole brother-sister thing between Michael and Laurie. But I think that was just created as just like a necessity for John Carpenter. Because I think he had to justify why Michael would still go after Laurie Strode. Because it's the thing where it's like, okay, we need to bring Jamie Lee Curtis back. Because the last movie was a hit. So why is Michael stalking her again? Why is he still, if he just targeted her in the last movie. And then he just contrived this whole brother-sister thing. And it's one of those things where it's like, it's dumb, but at least it's like functional and it's personal, where you can understand a motivation there. I think that's why it's stuck around for so long. Um, yeah, the other than the 2018 one, they've been brother-sister the entire time. Yeah, I mean, it, it works better if they're not related, because it's, it's a lot scarier if he's just targeting a random a random girl. Because yeah. if you try to give a little more meaning to it, I, again, it, it it dilutes Michael. Yeah. But, it, but it's fine. It, but that's the thing, though, where I think it still does kind of work. At least it's it's something, it's functional. And then when you go into H2O, they're still related. And then it, it provides a very good arc and through line for, for Laurie to face her fears. I think it just depends on, like, who's doing the writing and, like, what motive do they have. So it works in part two and in H2O because, you know, it's competent writing. And then, like, you have Jamie Lee Curtis to act off of. But, like, when you get into four, five, and six, it's like, okay, you know, like, why is the family, like, it's a, you know, a contrivance in those movies to have him keep coming back. Okay, he's got to kill the family line. It doesn't really make as much sense, and it's just, like, feels like, okay, well, that's the reason why, because they're related versus, I know, was contrived for Carpenter, I should say, with part two, like, he just had to pull it out to do something, but, like, it feels earned, at least, because they were trying versus just... It was an afterthought, and like, oh yeah, of course he's going on killing spree. It's his family. I, I think Carpenter was trying because he, he, he said he bought his six pack before he wrote the script to the second movie. 
and, uh, and you can kind of tell. Because yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis is, isn't in the movie that much. She, I wouldn't say she's the main character. She's incapacitated for most of the movie. It's like the, this other group of characters who, who are getting killed off one by one. Yeah. Halloween 2 is okay. It's 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 fun. I, I think the star of that movie is Dean Cundey's cinematography. There's some really great visuals and, and lighting in that. It, um, but, you know, it's all, it's all right. Well, the weird thing for me with that is, is you know, it takes place same night. Like, like it, yeah, you know, yeah. people say it's like, it's like the two acts of the same movie or whatever that, you know, like you watch as like a double feature and it's just very weird because it's like, okay, it was like, what is it, like five years, three, four years later. So it's like, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis has to be like wearing a very bad wig in it. It's like, there was no reason to necessarily make it the same night they could have done. And I think that would have been creepy. Like, you know, he's been out, like he escaped that night. We, we don't know where he is. You know, he's been around for a few years and then you could still have her be like a star because now it's a few years later and blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, she's still barely in it, but it feels a little weird that it's like, you're now narrowly locked into, we have a handful of hours before dawn that this could be set in. I don't think that's a bad idea because at least it's, it still stays true to Michael in this movie where instead of springing up and targeting Laurie arbitrarily many years later, here at least it's like the same night because at least it's consistent with the ending of this where he disappears and you know he's still out there and then with the second movie, okay, it's the same night. It's still Halloween, so it means he can show up again. So it's it's conceivable. Yeah, but H2O so I, worked where there was 20 years in gap. And he was, that works was, too and that's, that's why I was okay with them making a, a new one of these because I... The idea of Michael springing up after so many years to kill again is actually pretty scary, and you don't know why. I think that's that's a really good idea. Well, it's actually um, interesting to talk about the um, extended lure of the Blair Witch. Uh, I've been watching so much of that between all the freaking interviews I've done. I never want to watch that movie again. Um, but the extended lore of the Halloween movies is um, this YouTuber who I watch called Dr. Wolfiela did a review about like talking about how in the mid 90s they made a um, book series about Halloween and it was like right before H2O came out like in the weird in between time of um, Halloween Resurrection or Curse whichever part six is um, um, being you know like kind of killing the franchise and then the revival of it and the, the one book was dealing with the fact that it pretends none of the sequels after you know part one happened and that's just been michael myers has been living somewhere in the outskirts of haddonville and he just comes back every so often just kills a few people and then that's it he's become like a book like the literal boogeyman like urban legend of the town and i thought that was also a potentially interesting um way of doing well, it i guess rob zombie kind of did that with part two of making him hobo michael living in the woods for a while so maybe not well it almost sounds like the 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 aborted uh script that Carpenter and Deborah Hill wrote for the for, for Halloween 4 where Michael was kind of in it and he wasn't but it was more around the thematic idea if you I guess the setting was Haddonfield cancels Halloween after these murders and everything so they try to they try to conceal it but um, but the youth is, is trying to you know they're fascinated with the idea of Michael Myers and everything and they're trying to bring him back and I, I get and Michael is coming back because of their belief in it he, he's, he's coming back as like a ghost and I guess the theme of it is like if you try to make something taboo and, and restrict it, it, it's just going to come back and rear its ugly head. So wait, Jake, you're telling me that if the government were to try and like shut things down for 
protection and then a bunch of asshole youths who are like, I'm probably not going to be affected by this and still try and do it anyways, that that would be bad. Yes, I'm saying Halloween 4 was ahead of its time. Or, or the, the, the John Carpenter script. But even with Halloween 4, um, again, it's like The Force Awakens of the franchise. It's pretty much the same movie as this, just set in the 80s. Yeah, I would say but, um, but it has a good ending. is the follows that reboot sequel formula that The Force Awakens does. You know what's a, a, an aspect of that that isn't talked about as much, too? the meta narrative of those yes. sort of things and are we like i feel like we're in the age of like the meta narrative yes and because that's in halloween 2018 mm-hmm. and i guess to keep it on topic where they have like the teenagers walking down the street going oh only three people got killed that's nothing and it's the meta sort of the that meta aspect commenting on itself it's like a weird trend where it started off kind of neat and novel it's... i think of like the lego movie and now it's almost coming across like trite in its own right i think now it's just it's gotten lazy and very just just a very easy thing to do it's it's uh, i i remember I think... jake we talked about this a long time ago but it has become a trend recently over the past several years where i feel like we the importance kind of how how, how we view something how we how maybe the fans of something how they view a movie in real life tend to ascribe that importance within the narrative and within the characters themselves you know what I mean? It, I remember yeah, I, that I was... felt that way watching the 2018 Halloween. And yeah. more important, in like a larger sense, it's making these franchises about themselves and about what they mean in the real world. And I think there's like something very cynical about that if you like really go too far with it, where you yep. end up with like movies that are just about how great they are and how much you should like them. Yeah, that's what's kind of... Well, that, we're talking about Spider-Verse too, how that kind of did that. Which is... and. I, I don't know. I'm not going to get too much into this, but Spider-Verse is a great movie that is about how great Spider-Man as a franchise is, basically. Yeah. And there's something inherently cynical about that to me, where it's about, it takes the novel idea of anybody can be Spider-Man, which is a very inclusive theme, but it's also a very commercial theme. It's essentially saying anybody can buy Spider-Man toys. And, well, uh, I'll, I won't get too much into that, though. That's a whole thing. Well, yeah, but it is consistent with what we're talking about for the Hall- the 2018. Like, I remember, Jacob, you made a good point where Lori, how she's traumatized. How, you know, this movie that we ascribe so much importance to in our lives, within the narrative of this reboot sequel, it's so important to her to the point where she's traumatized, where it affects her character. Now, it might work a little better there because this is a very traumatizing event where I think it would scar you for a long time, but I think it is part of that, part of that idea, too, where... Here's this very important thing that we hold very dear in real life. And, oh, look, the character, look how the character views this very important thing within the context of the film. It's kind of like a similar thing. In the context, yeah, that's like the weird contradiction for me with that is that on one hand, I don't totally buy that her character would be that traumatized after the events of this. Traumatized to some extent, sure, but I don't think she would turn into like a crazy survivalist with like a a a weapon like cash. Yeah, cash inside her house and everything. Booby trap yeah. in the house. But on the other hand, it made for an interesting character. I just mm-hmm. I didn't that I didn't really see it as like an A to B sort of thing. I didn't the connection wasn't quite there for me, even yeah. if it was like interesting in the film as a vacuum. 
for me with that is I think like when I was watching because I felt the same way and it goes with the meta narrative of like oh it's not that scary and all that it's like and it like it was weird like you're right they put that in there just for the sake of it because that still would be a fucking disturbing case of this kid killed his sister in the 60s never talked again broke out of jail once killed four people because we always forget about the um, the mechanic on the side of the road gotta count him in there too um and then you know, got caught and then never talked again for four years. It's like, that would be disturbing to, like, a small town. So it's like, yeah, weird that they did that. But with um, Lori, I think you're right to a certain extent that, like, yeah, she would be traumatized, which would become a gun-toting nut. I partially, and I have no confirmation of this, but part of me feels like that was a, they might have had a version of the script where part two was canon, where she, he then followed her to the hospital and was the sibling, and they cut that out, but they still kept the gun-toting Lori because then that's in her mindset of he's my brother he's trying to kill me he tracked me down later that night before being caught he's gonna break out and kill me again versus if it's just part one this crazy guy tried attacking me and he's been in jail for 40 years like why she automatically assume he's pure evil I mean we don't we don't know that though yeah. Yeah. So, um, I just uh does the sort of meta narratives of these franchises i think it just speaks to how like widespread franchise sensibility has become within hollywood yeah. and just like in a broader sense within what we just consume for entertainment where we're like cannibalizing so many different franchises consuming so many different ones that they the amount gets narrower and narrower versus original content that we watch. And I don't want this to turn into a rant about we need to watch more original content. I mean, I think anything can be good if executed right. But um, it's getting to a point where we're just watching franchises that are about themselves. Um, mm -hmm. I felt that way with like, I think Star Wars is like the proverbial example of that at this point. But you can definitely see that with Halloween 2018, which I thought was a good movie. Yeah, well, I, the point is just... <laughs> Stop telling me how important these franchises. Just make a good story. Just do that. That isn't about the importance of itself, yeah. right? That can, yeah. It's just like about that's saying something in its own right. Actually engage with it for what it is and create a story based on and just try to expand it and do the best that you can. Exactly. Um, yeah. So we're obviously getting into the climax already. Um, yeah, and again, like, Dean Cundey's cinematography is great. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is selling the hell out of this. You know, being fucking terrified. I kind of believe that John Carpenter was threatening to fucking murder her at this point. Um, but no, it's, like, great. It's, like, you see, like, the final girl trope, you know, is often overplayed, but it just feels so natural that, like, this, you know, innocent, sweet babysitter is now, like, fearing for her life, and it makes sense that she's the last one alive just out of sheer luck that she was the last one to go in that house that had she went to that house before the other two came they would have been finding her corpse and it's just like sheer luck and it's like he's a force of nature coming forward albeit very slowly but that makes it more sh pants shittingly terrifying as you see him slowly coming towards her Yo, this is like a lockdown shot too right here yeah see there's sort of it's it's suspenseful without having to do too many fancy tricks there. It's mm -hmm. like locked down. He's walking towards the camera. I actually like to go to this house. Um, it's only like a half hour from us, but um, I'd like to go there and actually see like 
is this shot in real time? Like, with how fast we see him walking, would it really take him that long to get across the yard? I, I've just always wondered. Like, I go back and forth whether he's walking way too slow or way too fast for the pace we see, or is that, like, so well lined up that it actually works? It's just something that's always creeped the show because I can't really place my finger on it. It, like, goes to the whole... He's going so slow, but he can still catch up on you. It's not like a, the Mummy movies from the 50s. It's like he's got his deliberate pace, and it's like it's still fucking terrifying. Everybody knows Michael Myers must walk at a certain pace while breathing at a certain <laughs> rhythm. They're going to, if Nick Castle ever dies, they're going to dissect his corpse to figure out the exact physiology and anatomy of Michael Myers so they can digitally recreate him with CGI and make him move exactly like he's supposed to. Like a clumsy stuntman made in a low-budget 1970s movie. Oh, God. It's like how they're bringing James Dean back for that like Vietnam movie that'll never come out now because of COVID. Like they're gonna do, like recreate Nick Castle in every way, shape. Are you form. kidding? That movie's more likely to come out now because of COVID because it stars CGI actors. Fair point. I also like um, it, this movie, especially has the trope of people being like, "Yo, keep stabbing him, keep shooting him, make sure he's fucking dead." But it's like. It goes to show I hate that argument because it's like, at least in this one, like, I could see, like, in the 2018 one, in this one, Lori is, like, a 17-year-old babysitter who was freaking out after seeing all three of her best friends fucking dead and then had to stab a guy. That's like, yeah, I think it's not on her top priority to keep stabbing him, check his pulse and all that. Like, it makes it feel more realistic that she is just now frazzled. The adrenaline is starting to come down on her. That's just, just like, well, I, I think he's dead. Okay, I'm going to just assume he's dead now. Well, it's more about the suspense, or excuse me, the suspense of just assuming that, because she doesn't, nobody knows, including Lori, that he's unkillable. As far as we know, he can he can die right now. And what's scary is that, oh, the twist is, oh, he's he's alive. Like, he just keeps coming back, and that's what makes him more terrifying as the movie goes along. Yeah. Because at this point, if you're in the theater in 1978, yeah, you think you think he might be dead, too. Yeah, we're an hour and 22 minutes. Well, it's not like, so. I mean, it's just that he keep. it's not like a thing where he can't be killed, though. It's He's just like, he keeps coming and they keep failing to kill him. Well, that's the thing with this movie, all I, the injuries... I'm totally misunderstanding this. No, in this movie, I think all the injuries he sustains are potentially, um, you know, you could get through. So it's like, okay, she jabbed him in the neck, you know, she missed the carotid artery or, or the, sorry, the jugular... And then when, um, in the brief, very brief scene when his mask comes off after she stabbed him in the eye with the um, hanger, you can see it's a cut above his eye. So it's like, she's just not hitting anything important because she's not, like, a very good shot. And it's like, even with, like, the final scene where um, Loomis shoots him six times, you know, and the, he's gone. It's like, you know, that was the thing. Before the sequel, you could argue, did he just crawl off frame? He's dead in the bushes in the next yard over? Or is he truly unkillable? So this one, it... Play, you could go either way. Is he an unkillable machine, or are they all like fucking really terrible shots? Like, did Loomis miss all but like one of those shots that caused him to fall over the balcony? Like, I, it works either way. I I think it's it's supposed to be he's unkillable. John Carpenter's used that word, and plus the little kid here says you can't kill the boogeyman. That, like, that's the point. Well, I know there's like, like the it's like kind of a a figurative thing though. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, and I, like the fact that he's he disappears at the end as sort of just like the cherry on the cake. It's not supposed to be like 
literally if you threw a bomb at michael myers he wouldn't die it's just like you can't like kill like these inner demons kind of thing or something yeah like it's that. It, it's more of that you don't want to take it too literally it's it's more of this idea michael's yeah, like this yeah. evil he's evil that's it he's simply sure. evil you can't yeah he's the and boogeyman evil that's... can't be like evil can't be stopped yeah yes yep i also like have they you can guys... just be thrown out a window and then put in successively disappointing sequels to dilute it exactly well that's why he's called the shape he's not called yeah. michael myers in the credits he's called the shape yeah yeah because that's it, the thing he was michael myers when he was a little kid but he's the shape you're um, yeah. Has has actor Mike Myers ever commented on this? Probably. I I, I imagine he's not very happy with with it. <laughs> um, but this Just reminds... imagining him in his fat bastard voice complaining about this, <laughs> or talking like Shrek. That Boy, Michael Myers. Carpenter. <laughs> Why are you John... naming your movie villain after me? I, I know he didn't name him yeah. after him but it's just a voice um, <laughs> but have you guys seen that or listened to that audio someone brought like an audio recorder into a theater back in the 70s and was recording their reactions to like this final five minutes of the movie yeah I've, I've listened to that I don't know if that's real or not though yeah, I like to think it's real my favorite recording I ever found like that was someone recorded the reaction to Anakin getting burned in a theater in 2005 <laughs> And, like, everyone's just dead silent, except for some chuckling when he finally catches on fire. <laughs> it was, and, like, I they looked in the comments, and they were just, like, I think someone quoted Back to the Future, because it was when Obi-Wan says, It's over, Anakin, I have the high ground. And someone just linked to that part of the video, and were like, You may not be into it now, but your kids are going to love it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. That'll be a commentary down in the future. Oh my god, I would totally be down. I, we would have to like stop it and then rewind to the beginning and just like watch it twice for me to get through all the things I like to talk about in Revenge yeah. of the Sith. Because the first yeah, that... half would just be me quoting every line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. Anyway, back to Halloween. But yes, I would like to do that commentary at one yeah. point too. Um, also, Love just Revenge like... of the Sith. Okay, back on top. But no, Nick Castle raising up. Like that again it's like it's amazing like the physicality of what he could do with this movie when he did not have any desire to be an actor he was just doing a favor like i can't imagine like hypothetically let's say there was a video on jacob's youtube channel where i'm dressed up like a genie or something like that like, that'd be ridiculous but imagine that word i can't imagine the amount of effort that would be put in on my part would equal anywhere near to the level of like Nick Castle like doing a favor for his friends like this is like crazy like like this shows you how good of a friend he, he's a much better friend of John Carpenter than I am for you Jacob in this hypothetical scenario um, for like the amount of like hard work he plays and like the physicality in it and then oh and Nick Castle will be damned um, yeah now we have our other actor for the unmasked Michael for these like two seconds. So that's yeah, not that, Nick Castle? Yeah, that was a no. different guy. Yeah. Oh. I always yeah, liked Car- that it was very unceremonious, the unmask here. Yeah. And John, John Carpenter said he wanted to find an actor with an angelic face to contrast with this evil figure. I, we keep talking about it like Nick Castle was just doing this out of like, the goodness of his heart. I, you know, he, gets, <laughs> he did get paid for this. Too. But, like, still. Yeah. yeah. I'm like oh, yeah but he, like, is, he is trying. In our yeah, hypothetical situation, unfortunately, Andrew did not get paid for the genie costume thing. Well, next time, Jacob, when you make a horror movie, Wasp can play the murderer. 
<laughs> you can strangle your actress the next we're time. Gonna, we're going to push you over the balcony. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I also love with this, I mean, again, Jamie Lee Curses and then Donald Pleasant's real, the only time they interact, which is crazy to think, like, oh yeah, the two leads don't interact until, like, two minutes before the movie ends. And, um, but I love, like, just the physicality of both of theirs, and, like, she's really giving it her all. And, um, you know, she's really giving it her all, and then also someone who's forever ruined this scene for me by pointing out that Jamie Lee Curtis was like taking a nap like on a couch before this, so you can see like the creases in the couch from the couch on her face a little bit. And, <laughs> just, and it was like a corduroy couch. If you look carefully, you can see like the ridges. It's like perfect. Oh, but this amazing. is a great, great piece of acting from Donald Pleasance here. Yeah. Apparently, this was well, his idea. Yeah, and I think um, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but like it was like he was just supposed to look out to be like surprised, but Pleasance went to Carpenter's like, no, I want to have a version where I do like uh, I knew this was going to happen and it's like that's that much more terrifying yeah and this all was the setting here was added in post-production they just yeah. shot all these exteriors of the locations and just slapped them in there with the music and the breathing yeah, and breathe. yeah. Works well, and actually the um, shot of the living room if I believe I would have to look back at it but uh, I'll put it up on screen if I'm wrong but like you can see the butcher knife on the ground because that was just like a set photo they took before they were uh, moving on, so like it definitely wasn't intended to be, um, uh, like this is where it is after the fact. It was like there's just a set photo. They're like, yeah, use it. So, uh, yeah, Michael age twenty three six and the shape was in there already. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, so Tom, Tony Moran was the one who was unmasked. So that's the unmasked Michael, yeah. and he's twenty three yep. in this. I didn't know yeah. that. That math doesn't work exactly out, but whatever. Yeah, well, in the second movie, he says Michael Myers is 21, so I don't know. Well, there's also... John Carpenter forgot to carry it, too. Yeah. He, he probably he was did. He was probably... Yeah, when he was on his third beer. <laughs> but... Deborah, Is math right? <laughs> ah, fuck it. It's fine. Change <laughs> the smoke billowing out. That's why... I... Open the window. You can't see... <laughs> Can't see my paper. I'm trying to calculate his age. No, that's why he got <laughs> fucked up. He could. There was so much smoke he couldn't see which key he was pressing. So he had 22. <laughs> he was coughing too. Already accidentally hit the, the the one. You can't make Michael 231 years old. Oh, it's a typo. I said that evil was immortal. Oh boy. So well. We thank you for joining us in with our Halloween commentary of Halloween. Um, October's been a big month for us, so thanks to the new subscribers we've gotten on it. So this is what we do on a normal basis now. Um, and then, yeah, join us in November when we're doing um, four reviews of, um, what was it called? Freebirds? Freebirds. Yeah, Freebirds. in the month of Freebirds. <laughs> Freebird-uary. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. After years of fruitless warning of his farmyard brethren of the coming Thanksgiving doom, Reggie the turkey finds himself spared as the annual pardon turkey. However, Reggie's easy life is disrupted by Jake, a fanatic turkey who drags him along with the insane idea of going back in time to make sure turkeys are not part of the first Thanksgiving. Through foolhardiness and luck, the pair manage to take an experimental time machine to do just that. Now in 1621 at the Plymouth Colony, 
Reggie and Jake find themselves in the middle of a turkey clan struggle for survival. In doing so, their preconceptions of the world and themselves are challenged forever in a conflict from which the world will never be the same.